I want to focus our attention this morning on part of Psalm 139 and then um, that gospel passage, the part of that gospel passage that we just heard this morning. In preparation for that, I'd like to ask a question. Um, I want you to consider for a moment what types of things the voice in your head says to you in quiet. What types of things do you hear about yourself? And do you listen? It's a common enough problem to feature regularly in popular media. My family and I um, recently rewatched this recent classic, um, Despicable Me. I don't know if you've seen that movie, um, but there's this kind of antagonist slash protagonist who kind of morphs into a protagonist by the end of the movie, but he's this villain, and he's really mean. Um, and throughout the movie, you flash back through this character's mind to his childhood where his mom was never impressed with anything he did, no matter how grand or brilliant. He built a rocket that flew into space, and she just kind of looked over and went, yeah. Um, so he's constantly um, driven along through the story by this voice that he's never good enough. And so that's driving him, that's shaping him, and really forming um, the contours of his life. Melanie Greenberg uh, is a leading psychologist, one of the top 30 in the world. I don't know how you measure that, but if you measure it by, by Twitter followers, according to the British Psychological Association, she's in the top 30. Um, and she writes along these lines. Loser, you're not interesting. You're still not good enough. You are not very lovable. You need to work hard at maintaining anyone's approval because it's not you they love, but your performance. She goes on to write, does this sound familiar? Of course it does. We all have voices inside our heads commenting on our moment-to-moment -moment experiences. The quality of our past decisions, mistakes we could have avoided, and what we should have done differently. These voices can be really mean and make, it make a bad situation much worse. Rather than empathize with your suffering, these voices criticize, disparage, and beat you down at every opportunity. The voices have a familiar ring to them and convey an emotional urgency that demands our attention. These voices are automatic, fear-based rules for living that act like inner bullies keeping us stuck in the same old cycles and hampering our spontaneous enjoyment of life and our abilities to live and love freely. She goes on to explain that psychologists believe that these voices are residue of childhood experiences, automatic patterns of neural firing stored in our brains. And as adults, we still listen to these voices and we don't even notice or question them anymore, even though they are not objectively true or still relevant to our situation. As we think about this, and as we think about maybe some of the voices that we struggle with, some of the things that we hear, 
It sounds like darkness, doesn't it, what she describes? It sounds like darkness. Those voices sound like they're coming from a place of darkness. These voices give words to shadows from the past. They give uh, words to these shadows and have this tinge of death about them. So what voices do you listen to? Does a dark, shadowy narrative haunt you and strain to control you? What tone and shape do the voices in your head suggest? Do you notice them? Do you question them? Do you listen to them? The psalm and gospel readings from this morning invite us to look very closely at our thought life. God calls us to consider how we fundamentally think about ourselves. Perhaps you, like most people, struggle with internal thoughts of self-doubt, criticism, or fear. We all carry pain and regret. If this is a trap for you, by the way, or it's something that's very, very real, even making it hard to listen, um, Kevin or another trusted friend would really be happy to sit down and talk to you and pray with you, and, and if necessary, will help both point you in the direction of trustworthy resources. We know from King David's life and his other writings that he struggled significantly with thoughts like the one Dr. or the ones Dr. Greenberg describes. But here's where we're going to focus this morning, beginning in Psalm chapter 139. We're going to focus on the voice of God the voice that God wants you to hear inside your head. God invites us to listen to this voice, to notice this voice, and to believe this voice. Let's listen again to Psalm 139, verses 13 to 18, which we didn't hear this morning, but we can hear it again here. It's familiar. And as you listen to this, Think about how David is giving articulation to God's voice inside his head. This is a man, as you read the Psalms, who went to very dark places, sometimes because of the betrayal of someone close to him, even in his own family. Sometimes it was circumstantial as he was trying to rule the kingdom and going through different perils. Sometimes it was self-inflicted because of some horrible things that he did. And, and grappling with the regret and shame and pain and consequences of his own choices. We know David's life was more like a roller coaster than uh, a clean line from point A to point B, vectoring upward. It wasn't that. So as you listen to this, know that it's being written by a man who has all kinds of voices in his head. But listen to how he articulates this voice, God's voice. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God! How vast is the sum of them! 
If I would count them, they are more numerous than the sand. I awake, and I am still with you. Here are some key things about you, about David, that that can represent a voice in your head. You are perfectly known by God. You are carefully, specifically, intricately created by God. God made you so wonderful as to inspire this deep gut level awe at the sheer majesty of you. God placed you here on purpose and moved you along day by day with his full awareness. The God who has thought through every contingency of your life holds you fast. These are the truths that David is articulating about God and about himself. Is, is you're not separated. David, it's almost as if he's taking stock of himself and, and recognizing the intricacy of his, his lungs and how they work or observing his heartbeat or looking at his hands and, and the ways that somehow his brain is sending signals to his body such that it responds perfectly. He's marveling at how amazing he is. Make no mistake about it. And that marveling at how amazing he is and how carefully governed and provided for he is directs him immediately to give thanks to God. David doesn't stay there. He's not just swaggering around talking about how great he is. He's recognizing how great he is and how amazing he is. And it's taking him to look beyond himself to the one who made him and who takes care of him, who governs him and sustains him. I imagine that when David was going through some of his dark seasons or when there was a cacophony of other voices in his head disparaging him and dragging him down and reminding him of his failures or of his weakness or of his doubts or of betrayals, I imagine that this kind of remembrance helps David to keep perspective on things. And I believe that God is here today to use this word, to use his words, to give voice to these truths and to these voices, to this voice that can be in our heads as well. You are fundamentally and immeasurably valuable, lovable, accepted, beautiful, and marvelous. That's what David is saying. That's what David is recognizing. As we move on to the gospel passage in Matthew chapter 4, this is a familiar passage. I'm not going to reread the entire thing. Um, John the Baptist has been going about baptizing the entire region of Galilee. So in the different gospel um, accounts, they perhaps use hyperbole to say everybody went down to the River Jordan to get baptized. The whole region went down to the Jordan River to get baptized that day. It wasn't just a trickle of people. It wasn't a smattering, you know, a couple of neighbors went down there. I, I think I've heard of John the Baptist. The way it's written sounds like everybody had gone down to be baptized by John the Baptist. Everybody knew what was going on. Everybody had been close to John the Baptist, close enough to be baptized by him. 
can hang out at the river and talk about it and listen to your sermons and things like that. So that was happening. And then Jesus went down to get baptized. And then Jesus went into the wilderness. And then Jesus came back from the wilderness. And then he started traveling around. And <coughs> he moved to this place, Capernaum. And he started traveling around and preaching the gospel. And then he goes from preaching the gospel in that area down to this other region where he sees some fishermen and Jesus Christ, the one that John has been pointing to and talking about being so great. Jesus himself comes to this coast and, and, and identifies these two sets of brothers and invites them to follow him. And they do immediately. When they hear his voice, they drop what they're doing and they follow Jesus. This has a lot to do with what we were just considering about Psalm 139. I've heard this sermon preached, or I've heard this passage preached dozens of times, and it usually lands on somewhere like the cost of discipleship. Um, look, these guys heard this invitation from Jesus, they dropped everything and they followed him. What are you doing to follow Jesus? What are you giving up? Are you willing to drop everything and follow Jesus? And I appreciate that, and there's certainly some aspects of Matthew's gospel and all the gospels where the cost of discipleship is going to be pressed and, and questioned and kind of sifted, but it's not here. Um, the weight of this passage is much different than that. The weight of this passage is Jesus came in person and he's preaching this message and then he identifies these people and looks them in the eye and with his mouth, he extends an invitation for them to come and follow him. They get to do this? Are you kidding me? That's kind of the weight of this passage. It's, it's, the it's the audacity of being included in Christ, the audacity of the privilege of, of being able to attach ourselves to him. It resonates very closely with where David was coming from. I can't believe I get to be here. I can't believe how amazing I am. I can't believe how amazing you are that you could create me. It, it takes that and kind of carries it to another level of, I can't believe I get to be included in Christ. I can't believe that I, be, that I can be attached and woven in to him. So let's consider that as we read this passage or this portion of it. And let's also think about these thoughts in our heads and how Jesus comes to scatter them, to take over. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. In the person of Jesus, a great light has dawned on everyone living in darkness in the shadow of death. Everyone. Matthew uses, he's writing to a Jewish audience he uses this quote and he uses this specific aspect of Jesus' ministry. He could have chosen from any dozen to illustrate that Jesus is going around everywhere preaching. He specifically highlights that Jesus is going to the Gentiles to do this. If the Gentiles are seeing a great light, if on the Gentiles this, this dawn is breaking, it will break on anyone. It can break on everyone. So it's a very inclusive way that Matthew is, is signaling to us no matter what our darkness is, no matter what shadow of death we feel like we live in or we're struggling in or that's struggling to control us, the light has shone. 
So these fishermen, these fishermen, these fishermen get to follow Jesus. They get to. Again, they've heard of him. They've seen him from a distance probably because they were down at that river. Some months have passed from that 40 days that Jesus spent after his baptism in the wilderness traveling around now and and then he comes. So if think about it from their perspective. I think again when I've imagined this passage, I think of Jesus just kind of showing up out of nowhere and this random guy is going to say, hey, drop everything and follow me. And they do this. And again, that puts the accent on how uh, how crazy their faith must have been because they had no idea who this person was. I don't think that's true. I think that these people knew the name Jesus. They maybe had even seen him from a distance at the river. Certainly, given how small these villages are and how closely connected they were and how everyone had gone down and everyone knew about John the Baptist, and John the Baptist is mentioned at the beginning of this passage, these guys knew who Jesus Christ was. They knew who Jesus from Nazareth was. He had made a huge splash on the scene. John the Baptist wasn't ambitious about Jesus. He kept preaching about Jesus. He pointed to Jesus and said things like, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Or when people would get too enamored of John the Baptist's ministry, he would say, no, 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 no. I'm just a sign pointing to someone who's greater than me. Someone else who's so great that as great as I am, I'm not even fit to untie his bandage. He was always pointing to someone greater. And so there was certainly this mystery around Jesus, but... There was no mystery around his greatness, around the gravity that, that hung around him. If someone as great and, and weighty as John the Baptist is going to point to him, even if we haven't heard much from him yet, we know there's something special about this Jesus person. I think that's where these guys in their boats were coming from when Jesus himself started walking along the shore preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Or more literally, repent, the kingdom of God is right in your face. They didn't understand it yet, but what Jesus is saying is, I am the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God has come to earth. I am Yahweh in the flesh. Repent and come to me. I'm giving everyone this invitation to drop what you're doing and attach to me. What an amazing, gracious invitation. And then there's who comes to these, these guys that are probably like, they're doing stuff in their boats, but they, they hear him and they see him and they're probably watching him. And he draws close and he looks them in the eye and he, he isolates them with his gaze. And then he says to these people intimately, individually, you drop what you're doing and follow me. Course they do. I use this illustration um, carefully, but imagine some kind of cultural figure that you've never met in person, but who you look up to. If you're a basketball fan, maybe it's LeBron James. Um, or if you like to read theology, maybe it's N.T. Wright. Or if you like watching TED Talks and you like thinking about things, maybe it's Brene Brown. Right, who's, who's done all this amazing work. Some kind of cultural figure, or Malcolm Gladwell. Um, 
But imagine if, if you like basketball and if you still, you know, are interested in that sort of thing. Imagine if LeBron James walked through this, into this auditorium right now and just said, I'm looking for a couple of people to spend a month with me. Um, any of your friends who, who like playing basketball or your kids, they can come too, and I'll personally coach them, and uh, you can fly on my jets and eat my food and have access to my bank account and just live it up and learn basketball and just hang out and have you know front row half-court seats at all the games I plan, whatever, something crazy like that. Um, if that happened and, and, and he was going around making that invitation, but then he walked up to you specifically and said, will you please do this? Will you come and be part of this um, practice? You would probably say, yeah, I'd, I'd, that's great. I, I can put some time into this. I mean, if I get access to your bank account, you make like a million dollars a week. Um, that'll cover it. I think the emphasis here is more like that. Yahweh, the one who created us, the one who created everything, isn't just this distant God. Yahweh now isn't just somehow symbolically or, or even literally with the tabernacle or the temple when sacrifices are made in a Shekinah glory kind of a way. Yahweh, he's here in person and he's drawing near to these people and he's drawing near to you and to me and saying, I want to fold you in. We say this every week during the prayer of thanksgiving, that these mysteries, they point us to the fact that we are living members of the body of Christ. He's brought you in, not just as kind of some abstract adopted child. He's actually folded you in to himself. You're part of him. The same way that your arm is part of your body. get to be completely united with Christ invokes this awe and tonight is a privilege to obtain such mercy such safety such identity and purpose and security such peace these fishermen they get to drop their fishing vests and attach themselves and be joined to this one through whom they are going to bear real and abiding fruit. The very next passage, these guys who the day before had been working on fish and thinking about fish, the, the very next passage, if you have your Bible open, Jesus is going around per, per, you know, performing all these miracles. He's healing sick people, par paralyzed people are being brought to him, demon-possessed people are being brought to him. All of this amazing stuff is happening and these former fishermen yesterday fishermen are right there courtside as part of Jesus new family it just gives us a sense that this is an audacious wonderful invitation and it's core to your identity if you are baptized into Christ that is the truest thing about you that voice should be heard in your mind. It should be listened to and believed. It's hard. It's hard to remember that. It's hard to hear that somehow over the din of 
depression and distraction and doubt. It's hard to hear that over the, the din of pain. I think that's why in his kindness God puts it in these scriptures like that. I think that's why in his kindness God gives us somebody like David who we can identify with. Man, this guy got to heaven having hit every guardrail. Every guardrail imaginable, he smashed into. If, if David was driving a car from Bethlehem where he was born to heaven, there is not a fleck of paint left on that car. And yet, in spite of all those collisions, in spite of all that damage, in spite of all that pain, he writes this. put me here for a purpose and you love me and you accept me and I'm on my way to you every time my heart beats I get that much closer to being with you and then we get to the gospel message and we see that God isn't just waiting for us to get home he's home in the person of Jesus and so you can be home now you can be home now fold yourself into me let me enfold you into myself. And in a way, that's what we're recapitulating every time we come to this table. We're reminding ourselves that just as that bread and that wine is integrated into our bodies, we've been integrated into Christ's body, and he's been integrated into ours. It's a little bit awkward to try to suggest application for this, but I do think that there's a mindfulness component that's offered here. If you've, I don't know if you've ever been to see any of your favorite bands play um, in a concert. I've been to U2 to see them play Sweet Home and, and they, they have that song that you get like every night and everything that I've heard it if they're ever in concert mode. And I've sat there for hours watching the four members of that band play and it's amazing. It's funny, though, and I could point to, you know, in a crowd, I could point out Bono and The Edge and Adam Clayton and, and Larry Mullen. I'm familiar with those guys, and I've watched them do their thing. And in those concerts, I've listened to them and watched them, but I've never seen the people at the mixing booth. You know, there's like a team of people, I'm sure, behind really expensive mixing boards that are controlling everything I see, every light. And they're controlling the minutia of different um, sound waves that are being transmitted through those microphones and through those instruments. I've never seen those guys at the mixing booth, though. But they control the experience of millions of people every year. And without them, you two would be sad. They would sound terrible. I want to suggest that our brain is like a mixing booth. And we've heard this, um, this psychologist describe these bullies in our head, these bullies that are, that are trying to elbow around and take control of the mixing board of the, the story that we hear and the truths that we believe. And God is here throwing his own elbow and saying, no, I want to be in control of this mixing board. I want you to hear my voice. And I do think, though it's not just purely a choice, I think that we have some choice in who we listen to. And I hope that through these passages, God helps us 
to find traction. And at least, if nothing else, helps us to believe we don't have to be blown along by these days. There's another voice available to us in Scripture. There's another voice available to us in the Gospels. There's another voice available to us in the person of Jesus who made us and embraces us and wants us to hear that we've been included. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Son.